cups of coffee this morning, and I'm excited to preach to you. Are you excited to listen? I hope you are. John chapter number three is where we're going to be this morning, and I'm so glad to be with my church family. It's the best day of the week, and uh, I love you all very much. When, um, when people ask why you're a Christian, or if you were to be asked, or maybe someone you've heard somebody ask why you're a Christian, they may give you a number of answers. You get a lot of different answers to that. Some people say, and when you use the term in a very broad way, there's a lot of things that are called Christian. Not everything that is called Christian is Christian. But th- there, are, there are people that might say, well, I'm, I'm a Christian because I was raised that way. If that's where you're at, um, please don't tell people that. That's a bad reason to be a Christian. In fact, if you that's where you're at, man, I want to talk to you because, and I want you to listen today because you may not be a Christian in the biblical sense, if that's all it is to you, is the way that you were raised. Sometimes they may tell you you're a Christian because you tried it and it worked for you, right? We live in a very pragmatic age where people say what works for you may not work for me and what works for me may not work for you. And so um, I'm a Christian because it works for me. And again, um, there's a lot of things that could work for you um, that could work for other people, but that doesn't necessarily make them true. That may, doesn't make that true. Um, you may think that, um, as you listen to me preach to you this morning, you may think, well, um, you're a preacher, so that's why you believe the Bible. You're a Christian because you're a preacher and you believe the Bible because you're a preacher. And, and I'm telling you that I'm a preacher not because I don't, I don't believe the Bible because I'm a preacher. I'm a preacher because I believe the Bible. Um, and, and I believe the Bible because there's evidence that I found both internally and externally about the Bible. One guy put it this way, and I thought, I thought it was really good. The Bible, everybody hold your Bible. You got a Bible? If you don't have it, it's on your app, maybe in your lap. Um, the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report to us supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. Let me say that again. This is a good, this is a good thing. Um, if you don't get this written down, go back online and listen to it again. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents. That's what we have. These are not stories that somebody made up. These are real things that happened, okay? Written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. You you don't test uh, historical data scientifically because scientifically stuff has to be repeatable, right? How do you get George Washington to to be repeatable? It's something that happened in the past. So you don't measure evidence that same way. This is a collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses that that report to us supernatural events. You're saying, well, supernatural events don't happen all the time. Correct. That's why they're worth writing down. (laughs) They don't happen all the time. It took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies that God actually well before it happened, said stuff would happen. Jesus is going to come. He's going to be born um, uh, in Bethlehem, that he's going to die a death on a cross, that he's going to rise again the third day. This is an amazing, who agrees, this is an amazing thing, that God, hundreds and thousands of years before it happened, 
uh, it happened, just like he said, and that these people claim that their writings were divine rather than human in origin. People that encountered Jesus wrote down what they, what they experienced. They made incredible claims. And then, and then, after they made these incredible claims about what they experienced, substantiated by hundreds, in terms of the resurrection, hundreds that saw him, then many of them, if not all of them, most of them, were persecuted and even died for what they said happened. It transformed everything about them, and they were willing to die for this historical, transformational truth. So that's why the Pharisees who killed Jesus look at Peter and John and say, Shut up! Stop talking about Jesus! And they said, Whether we should obey you or God... Judge ye. We can't help but speak the things that we have seen and heard. Amen. And there's no other name given among, uh, under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. Amen. So they went from cowards to being courageous because they saw Jesus die. They heard him predict that he was going to rise. And then he went and did it. Praise the Lord. These guys had encounters with Jesus that transformed their lives. And that's what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks leading up to Easter. You cannot encounter Jesus and walk away different. We've spent over a year learning from the book of Hebrews, and we learned that Jesus is greater. I'm glad you, some of you got that. That's good. Uh, we spent a lot of time learning about what the scripture says about him. Over the next few weeks leading up to Easter, I want us to learn from him. I want us to read the words that he said. I want to look at what he said and what he did. And we'll spend some time looking at these encounters with Jesus. And then we'll learn from him as we lead to after Easter. We're going to learn about what he said would happen in the future. Jesus taught us about not just what, what he was doing at the time. He's going to tell us about what's going to happen in the future. So I want you to stay tuned for that. It's going to be some exciting times around here. Here's the thing about Jesus. You can't spend time with Jesus and stay the same. He is someone that you must accept or someone that you're going to reject. There's no being neutral with Jesus. I've entitled today, today's message, Jesus Teaches About Salvation. This is an important thing. Jesus teaches about salvation. He does so, he does this in talking to a guy who at the time he talked to him was lost. This guy's name was Nicodemus. And we can learn from him. We can learn from Nicodemus. We can learn from Jesus. And, and, and we can learn about how to talk to people about Christ. Do, do people need to know about Jesus? They absolutely do. And we're going to learn something from Jesus, the master evangelist, as he talks about, about salvation here. We can understand important truths through this encounter with Nicodemus. We can understand important truths about the nature of salvation that should cause us to witness. What do I mean by a witness? I'm talking about evangelism. I'm talking about telling people about Christ. We, we, we can learn these by seeing three illustrations Jesus uses and his encounter with Nicodemus. Let's, let's do that today. Let's look at the first illustration that we're going to find in John chapter 3. We'll start back at verse 1. In our reading this morning, we started, I believe, in verse 8, but we're going to go all the way back to verse 1, and it's going to be, are you guys excited? You guys don't look, I want you to be, this is going to be fun. 
All right, so verse one, here we go, ready? Here's what it says. Verse one, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, I'll pause there and say that in this text, this guy named Nicodemus has an encounter with Jesus. We learn a few things from him right away. You see this in the first verse. What, what was his position? He was a man of the Pharisees. Now, Pharisees, most people that are familiar at all with the New Testament, and even people who aren't super familiar with it, even in our culture, if you call someone a Pharisee, um, it's not typically a good thing, right? Um, the term Pharisee is a negative word because of their role in the life of Jesus in the Gospels. Um, they typically didn't have good things happen between them and Jesus. So this guy is a Pharisee, and the term has become, in our day, synonymous with hypocrite for many people. Pharisees um, were um, middle to upper middle class people in Jesus' time who were highly concerned with being ceremonially and externally pure. They wanted you to know how close they were to God. And the way they wanted you to know that was by, by the way that they lived and what they wore and where they prayed and how they did the ceremonies that, that God had laid down. And they, and they even added, um, okay, God says this much, and so if God wants us to be here, we're going to be here. <laughs> Try not to pull something, right? They're like, we're going to be super, uber puritanical, super incredibly pure in the way that we do our Judaism. They, they memorized and strictly adhered to the law and even added to the law their own codes based on their interpretation and behavior to strive to keep the law purely. And in doing so, often they said things on God's behalf that God did not say. It's not, it's not good to take away from what God says, but it's also really bad to add to what God says. And, and that's like, that's one of the commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Don't say what God says if God didn't say it. Right? And so that's what they were doing. So he's a Pharisee. He's also, it says here, um, a ruler of the Jews. And you see that in verse, um, verse 1 there? He, this guy named Nicodemus came to him, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. Um, this meant that he was part of the Sanhedrin. This was the ruling body of the Jews that made decisions regarding religious law. They could only appeal to Rome when it came uh, to judicial ideas like capital punishment, which is why they had to take Jesus later on. They're the ones that took Jesus to the Romans. Um, they had their own trial, which was, we'll see in a few weeks, was uh, unjust, unlawful. But then they, to actually execute Jesus, they had to take him to to Pilate, and Pilate sent him to Herod, and there's that whole thing. So you have Rome kind of coinciding with it. They could only appeal to Rome, like I said, when it came to judicial ideas. So this was a person of some prestige and authority. Who agrees? He's, he's got a reputation. This is a guy who, who, uh, who cares about what people think of him because he's a Pharisee and because he's in charge. C combine religiosity with politics doesn't usually go well, right? And that's what's going on here. So this was that kind of guy. Nicodemus knew people and people knew 
Jewish. <laughs> verse 2. Now look at what how, this influences. Verse 2. The same, talking about Nicodemus, came to Jesus when? By night. Now we all have, uh, we all have cell phones in our pockets that have cameras. Um, remember flip phones? Right? Those were fun. That was a better time. Um, I remember my friend got a flip phone. He's like, my flip phone has a camera. Here, I want to take your picture. And when you call, your, your picture is going to come up. And I was like, wow. Right? Uh, we live in that time where that's like ubiquitous. So if it was at nighttime, like you could do stuff and people are going to still, if you're going and if a politician is going to see the wrong kind of person, they could, somebody could get a picture. But in this day, like he is definitely covert. He's going to Jesus at nighttime for a reason. He, the people that he associated with certainly had a position on Jesus and it wasn't good, right? The other Pharisees don't like Jesus. In fact, uh, we see later they want to kill him. They didn't like him. They did not accept him. And that caused a problem for Nicodemus. Why was it a problem? Because he trusted his own eyes. The people he associated with claimed to be the people of God. They were the teachers of the Jews. They were the ones, remember? They think they're in league with God really good, but they have rejected Jesus. They don't like him. And that's who Nicodemus is associated with. So he goes to Jesus by night, and he thinks he's given him this huge admission, right? Look at verse 2. He said to him, same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, whoa, teacher, a teacher who has disciples, who speaks, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. Who's we? I think there's even some other Pharisees that are going, okay, this is, this is strange. We're rejecting him, but okay. For why? For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now, a couple of questions about that statement should be asked. First, did Jesus come from God? Did you, okay, okay, like, even if you don't believe that, just go with me. Yes, Jesus came from God, right? Jesus said, um, um, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. So he believed, I, he's come from God, right? Second, could Jesus do miracles merely because God was with him? It is not enough to say and believe only that God was with Jesus because God was with Moses. And that is why Moses could be seen parting a Red Sea. Did Moses do that? God did that, right? God was with Elijah, and that's why Elijah could see, be seen calling fire down from heaven. But did Elijah do that? God did that. Though Jesus came with the Father's authority, he didn't do miracles merely because he was with God and was from God. He was doing miracles because he is God. So Nicodemus thinks he's given this huge admission. Well, we know you're a teacher come from God because no one could do the miracles unless God was with him. So what does Jesus immediately think? You're halfway there. Whoa. Right. 
Probably shouldn't sing that song in church. Okay. <laughs> Nicodemus may have thought that he had made some huge admission in stating that he recognized that Jesus was from God, but his position did not go far enough for him to be saved. This is why Jesus began to teach him about salvation. And listen, when you get into a personal one-on-one conversation, if you're a believer in here today, and you are having a conversation with somebody, God is orchestrating the fact that you're having that conversation. Okay? And we need to have our antenna up when people tell us certain things to go, okay, what do they believe? And if what people will tell you what they believe, sometimes without questions, sometimes with questions, right? And when Nicodemus tells Jesus about what he believes and it's not far enough, Jesus goes, I got something to tell this guy. Are you with me? So look at what Jesus did. He, here's three different illustrations that he uses in this conversation to help Nicodemus understand, understand salvation. The first illustration is birth. He uses the illustration of birth. Jesus told Nicodemus here in talking about birth, he's telling him that, that salvation is necessary. Jesus describes salvation as being born again. Look at what it says in verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him. So what's the question? He's not even a question. It's a statement. Jesus, we know that you are a representative of God. You have come from God because the miracles that you are doing are substantiating who you claim to be from and who you are. You're saying, we, we, uh, usually when people are doing miracles in the, in the Old Testament, if someone's doing a miracle, they're with God. So we are admitting that, and, and I'm even admitting that even my peers that don't like you have to admit that this is what's going on. Jesus says to him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be, say the next two words, born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There are people that will see the kingdom of God after they die and people who will not. Is that what we just learned? If you want to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. That means some people aren't going to see the kingdom of God. What Jesus tells Nicodemus almost abruptly at first glance is that the only way to see the kingdom of God is to be born again. Salvation cannot happen when we wrongly identify Jesus as a good teacher or merely from God. Salvation must happen by a miraculous transformation brought about by the Lord in what he calls being born again. And as we will see in this passage, turning to Jesus, knowing that he is Christ by faith as the only hope for salvation through forgiveness of sins is what it takes to be born again. There must be a transformation brought about by the Holy Spirit that, that only he can do. Now, there are several times in the Gospels where Jesus gives a teaching. He makes a statement like he does here. Hey, verily, verily, truly, truly, you can take this to the bank. That's what he's saying. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's a statement, and then he stops. He pauses. How do I know he pauses? Because Nicodemus then asks a question. That statement almost begs a question. What's the question? What are you talking about? That's the question. 
Is that the question he wants Nicodemus to ask? I believe it is. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? One person in the room is laughing. I think she's the person that got the question, right? What? Jesus, are you saying that to see the kingdom, I got to be born again physically, right? How are people born? They're born. Women are incredible, right? People come from women. It's an amazing thing, right? I want to explain the process. But Nicodemus understands it. The answer gives, brings some clarity. There are two kinds of birth. There's a physical birth, he says here in verse 5, and then there's it's signified by water. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily I said to thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter to the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh, that which is born of woman, that is which is born of of, uh, of water, what happens when you're getting close to your time? It happened three times in my house. My water broke. Happens every time, right? That which is born of flesh, that was born physically, you have to be born physically, but you also, it's not baptism. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptize, baptism identifies you with Jesus. Baptism is a symbol or a picture of what Jesus did. This is not baptism. This is physical birth. He says, if you want to go to the kingdom of God, you've got to be born physically and you've got to be born spiritually. There is physical birth, there is spiritual birth. Someone must be born of the Spirit. That's the new birth. Jesus calls it being born again. So he says, Verily, verily, I send to thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Without bo both births, no one can enter into the kingdom of God. No one gets to God who's not born again. How many get to God not being born again? You must be born again. Born twice, die once. Born once, die twice. That's, that's it. Without both births, you can't get to the kingdom of God. Salvation about, through the new birth is necessary. It's required to get to God. The thing about birth is this. There was a time when you were born physically, and there must be a time where you are born spiritually. As we shall see, the new birth comes by faith, and, go, and you go from not trusting in Christ to trusting in Christ, believing in him. You must be born again. So what is the illustration? It's birth. To be alive spiritually, you have to be born spiritually. Just like to be alive physically, you have to be born physically. Are you with me? To be saved, you must be born again. Here's illustration number two. You ready? Illustration number two. Well, before I give you that, Here's the sum of the whole passage, that whole first part, verse 7. Marvel not. Don't be blown away. Was Nicodemus blown away? Yeah. 
Don't be blown away. Don't be marvel at that I say unto ye, you must be born again. Now this marveling that Nicodemus is doing is interesting. And that's where Jesus goes into this next illustration. Because again, what's the issue for Nicodemus? He doesn't understand Jesus' authority. He's saying something about Jesus. He hasn't, got, he hasn't got there about Jesus. What's true about him? Who is Jesus? He's God. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He is how salvation happens, right? And so, so here is Jesus teaching him about salvation, saying it's like birth. And, and Nicodemus is like, wait, you're hurting my head, Right? I'm, I'm marveling. What do you mean born again? And then Jesus has to explain it to him. Here's illustration number two. Wind. Salvation is a mystery. Now, if you're worried about what I just said, hold on. I'll, I'll explain myself. Jesus uses another illustration here for salvation. He's going from birth, which tells us that salvation is necessary, to wind, showing us that, that, that there's a mystery of salvation. Here he says in verse 8, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Okay? So who's like the wind? The person that's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus was part of a class of religious leaders that were consumed with defining the law. Remember? Okay. I'm going to do that till you laugh. That's what I'm going to do. Okay. They, they spoke on behalf of God, and they were very concerned about their own reputation and authority. He had come in saying that he recognized that Jesus was come from God, but that was not far enough. Jesus used the same word twice in verse 8. The wind bloweth where it listeth. That word wind is the word pneuma. It's translated in our translation that we're using this morning in verse 8. The pneuma, wind, in verse 8, very beginning, bloweth where it listeth. You can't tell what's coming, what's going, where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the pneuma, same word in the Greek, the spirit. Nicodemus would have had a theology that tried to quantify God and salvation, right? They had this thing that goes, and here's how they tried to quantify it. They thought that getting saved, getting right with God, going to heaven had to do with how well you kept the law. Okay? They, they also thought that it had to do with, with the Jews. It was very Judaistic, which is, which is true. Salvation is of the Jews. But, but they would have quantified it down to... Nicodemus thought he had already passed the salvation line. Are you with me? Nicodemus would have thought, if anybody's saved, I'm saved. Look at how good I keep the law. <laughs> Do you get it? You're teaching me about salvation, and you see me like you got an inside track that I don't understand. And, and he's saying, ding, I do. You think you have all this figured out, but you don't. There's a mystery to it that you don't understand. Everybody that's born of the Spirit, this is not just a, a formulaic plus, plus, plus equals. This, there is, this is a spiritual thing. You have to be born of the flesh and you have to be born of the Spirit, the pneuma. Right? 
And then he says this. Well, here's what I'll say. Well, it's keeping Nicodemus from being saved himself was that he did not yet believe what Jesus knew about salvation. Jesus has the authority and the information to teach us about the mystery of salvation. Why? Because of who he is. Because of where he's from. Jesus uses a very interesting term that Jesus would have picked up on in verse 13. Verse 12, if I have told you of earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that cometh down from heaven. What is he saying? Nobody has more information on this than me. That's what he's saying. If there's anybody who's got authority to tell you about salvation, it's me. Who has the authority? Who, who, he who came down from heaven, even, and here's the term, the son of man, which is in heaven. Now, the term son of man is used in the Old Testament many times, and it's in Ezekiel. It's also used in Daniel 7. And in this context, I believe that Jesus is referring to himself as the same person spoken of in Daniel chapter 7. Listen to what Daniel says about the Son of Man in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Here's what he says. Who did Jesus refer to? The Son of Man, which has come down from heaven, right? Look at verse 13. I saw in the night, this is Daniel speaking, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man come with the clouds of heaven and come to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages shall serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which, which shall be not, <laughs> and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. This is a messianic prophecy talking about this guy called the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, the eternally existent one who's going to come back and he's going to rule. This is the Messiah. And what Jesus is saying is, if you're not going to believe me on earthly things, how can I tell you on heavenly things? By the way, I know heavenly things because I'm from heaven. I'm the Son of Man. I'm the Ancient of Days. Are you getting it? I got the authority to tell you about the mysteries of salvation because you think you know and you just don't know. Listen to me. Jesus is leading Nicodemus to an understanding of who he is. Salvation is not just a concept. Salvation is a person. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And while we don't understand everything about the mystery of salvation, who does? Jesus does. He is the Son of God, the coming King, the Ancient of Days, and the ruler of a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. By saying that salvation is a mystery, I'm not saying that you can't know if you have eternal life. John tells us in his epistle, in John, 1 John 5, 11 to 13, this is so good. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may, what's the next word? That ye may what? That ye may know that you have eternal life, and that ye believe on the name of the Son of God. Salvation comes through Jesus. He tells us in his gospel, John 20, 20, 
uh, 30 and 31, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that ye may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Jesus has the authority to teach us about the mysteries of salvation. It is in him alone that we can understand, believe, and be saved. We should declare this, listen, who needs to know this? Everybody needs to know this. If you're here today and you're not saved, there's only one way to God. There's only, it's not uncaring or unloving to say that there's only one way if there really is only one way. And Jesus came down and lived a perfect life and kept the law you couldn't keep and died the death that you deserve to die. And it's only through his atoning sacrifice and putting your faith in him that you'll get forgiveness of your sins. That's what you need to know. And everybody you know needs to know it. People you don't know that you need to meet need to know it. The world needs to be saved, and they can only be saved through Jesus Christ. That leads me to this third illustration. So you have, you have birth, you have wind. Here's a third one, the brass serpent. What? That's weird. Right, the brass servant. Salvation is by faith. Look at verse 14. As Moses... And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, same terminology again, isn't it? Son of Man. I know about the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory. What is the Son of Man being lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness? Well, this refers to a piece of history that happened when the children of Israel we're in between Egypt and the promised land. You can read this in, in, in Numbers 21, verses 4, and we're going to read down to verse 10. Look, let's look at it. I put it up on the screen. Moses is leading the children of Israel. He's already led them out of, out of Egypt where they were in slavery. They crossed the Red Sea miraculously. Um, God provided for that. Then he's leading them through the wilderness. And as he's leading them through the wilderness, he's leading them at nighttime by a pillar of fire and in the daytime as a cloud, in a cloud. And Moses is their leader. He's the deliverer that God's using. And they're coming through and he's providing for them um, food. He's providing two things, quail and manna. Manna is a great word. It's when you think about manna from heaven, you sound like it's really good. If you have it every day, apparently you get sick of it. Manna, the word manna is what is it? That's what it means. The, the, the name of it is a question. What is it? They don't know what it is. It's like, who's on first? You guys with me? Okay. So, verse 4, 21 4. And as they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom, and the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Anybody ever travel with your family? And the first hour is pretty fun, but you're like on hour number eight on the road trip. Are we there yet? Audrey ate all the snacks. Right? I have to go to the... We literally just stopped. 
You ever have that? They're complaining. And that's with us with exits and minivans, right? These people are walking across the wilderness and they are mad. Verse 5, so what happened? And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us out of the Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread. Is that true? There is bread. It's called manna, right? Neither is there any water. If there was no water, they'd all be dead. And our soul loatheth this light I thought you said there was no bread. My kids, there's nothing to eat. There's vegetables to eat. There's nothing to eat. Right? So they're complaining. And so God, God disciplines them. Look at God's actions. Verse 6. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of the people of Israel died. Obviously, this is a very concerning situation. God's disciplining his people. So after the people came to Moses, Moses went to God. Verse 7, therefore the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. Yeah, it's amazing how crisis makes you go back to God. Some of you guys are here today in church because you're at a point where you have to come back, you come back to church because life's not working for you, right? Some, have you ever thought maybe that God allows difficulty in your life to Push you back to him. So, so now they come to Moses. We've sinned. We've spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. Now God responded to Moses and gave him very specific instructions. This will help us understand Jesus' illustration. Verse 8. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it up on a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall, what's the next word? Live. So what's the formula? Look and live. Right? It works well in the English there. Believe my word that if you look, you'll live. They have a responsibility. They're able to respond that when they get bit, they look to this brass serpent Believing God, believing Moses, and they live. And so, verse 9, Moses made a serpent of brass and put it on a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he had beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. The discipline worked. The people repented and begged God for mercy. God met the people's need by telling Moses to make this serpent, hold it up on a pole, and in the midst of the people. The person who looked up upon the lifted up serpent was healed. Jesus said that he must be lifted up just as a serpent was lifted up. What did he mean? Well, there's several pictures here. The children of Israel had a great need in this moment. Who agrees? Who hates snakes? Okay, let's really take a vote. Who hates snakes? Come on. These are the normal people. All the weird ones are the ones that have snakes at home. Okay. Um, They have this great need. They're getting bit. They needed forgiveness. They needed healing. This is exactly what people need today. People are broken. People are in need of a Savior. You're like, well, some people aren't broken. They got lots of stuff. The ones that have lots of stuff are still broken. 
They have the same need. They're sometimes worse because they don't even realize they have a need. People are in need of a savior. They're dealing with the poison of sin from that old serpent, the devil. I believe there's a symbol of the evil one here, Satan. Jesus Christ destroyed the works of the devil by being lifted up. Therefore, the serpent hanging upon the pole symbolizes the defeat of Satan. By looking upon the defeated evil, the serpent, Israel was healed. Today, man is healed by looking upon the Son of Man who's been lifted up on the cross. John 12 says, Now this is the judgment, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Who's the prince of the world? Satan. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. Hebrews 2.14. For then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had power over death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The serpent was a cursed creature from the very beginning. Jesus became a curse for man. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. What is Jesus referring to when he says he's being lifted up? He's talking about being lifted up. The, the serpent was lifted up. People look to the serpent and they're healed. Jesus was lifted up on the cross. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Look and live. If an Israelite believed God's message, he looked upon the life lifted up servant, he's healed. If a man did not believe in God's message, he did not look and he died. Thus it is with us today. Every man must believe the message of Christ in order to be healed. That is to be born again. God provided his son and we look to him and we live. This is exactly what Jesus said was the direct connection. Verse 15, he says, even so must the son of man be lifted up that whosoever, who? who, who what does whosoever mean? That those who he gave faith to and elected from the foundation of the world should believe? No, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He says later in John, 524, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. It was predicted by him in Isaiah. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Jesus Christ was lifted on that old cross so that you and I could be saved. This is why he came. This is why he died. So that all who believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. To make the illustration even more fitting and clear, look at verse 17. It says this, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus didn't come here so that he could tell everybody, you're going to hell, that's it. I'm done with you. That's not what he did. He came so that the world through him might be saved. Who? Who might be saved? 
The world. Who does that include? Raise your hand if you're in the world. Point to everybody else in the world. He that believeth on him is not condemned. That's the good news I got to tell you today. He that believes in him is not condemned. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Those people got bit by a snake. And when they did, they had a choice. I can either treat this and deal with this my own way. Or I can look and live. If you don't look, you're condemned already. The poison's already in you. It's appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. We all got the poison. You're already condemned. Look and live. Put your faith in Jesus. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We are sinners. The wages of that sin is death. Outside of Christ, we stand already condemned. The death sentence hangs over us. The default position of every person is condemned. Christ's purpose in coming was not judgment. He came to save. He came to be lifted up so that all would believe on him. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God gives us a free will. He gives us a choice. Um, we need to believe on him. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is necessary. You must be born again. Salvation is a mystery. And Jesus has a right to tell us what salvation is and how it happens. Because salvation is not just a concept. It's a person. It's him. He came from heaven to tell us what it is. Not to condemn us, but to save us. And when we, by faith, put our trust in Jesus, when we believe, what's John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so there's a couple groups of people in here. You're like, this sounds a lot more like something you would say to maybe on Easter, right? It's like there's more lost people here on Easter. I don't know who's here and what your heart is. If you're not saved today, know that right now you're condemned. 
look to Jesus and live. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow, right now. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. What is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. The steam that came from the shower you took this morning won't be there when you go to lunch. It's a vapor that appears like that and is gone. Any of you that are parents know, like, oh my goodness, they're in high school. I'm so glad we're out of diapers, but I didn't know it would go this fast. They're in high school. It's a vapor. It goes fast. Today's the day of salvation. Call on the name of the Lord. You're condemned because of your sin, but Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin on the cross. His blood was sufficient to pay for your sin, and it's efficient. And we'll pay for your sin if you look to him and live. If you're saved today, if you're saved today, aren't you grateful for salvation? Aren't you grateful that Jesus came to teach us about it and to provide it for us? And so, um, hey, we got a responsibility. We got to tell people, look and live. Believe in the name of Jesus Christ and live. Everyone's going to spend eternity somewhere, heaven or hell. Those without Christ are condemned already. We got to tell them about Jesus. We tell them about the salvation in Jesus that is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Uh, we are four weeks away from Easter. And in a very general way, people are more likely to come at Easter than at any other time. I had somebody call me this week and say, um, Pastor Ben, I'm kind of realizing that not everybody that says they're a Christian and that they went to church before went to a church that taught what the Bible teaches. They think they're good with God and they're not good with God. Not everybody talking about Jesus knows him. Nicodemus thought he was good with God. <laughs> and he wasn't. And Jesus had to tell him hard truths. You must be born again. Salvation isn't something you earn. Salvation comes by me. And we are in a time where people may be more likely to respond to an invitation to come here, I, I want you to know if they come on, on Easter Sunday, they're going to hear the gospel. I believe that is the second kind of strategy. The first strategy that I think is way, way better is you're not dismissed, you're sent. I think that's a way better strategy because if you're depending on everybody to come to church to hear it, and that's your only method of evangelism, I think it's good. I think it's good. I'm kind of not doing right by telling you, by downing what I'm trying to get you to do. Here's something amazing. I'm confusing you, but it's okay. Um, last year, we had an initiative called Hoosier One for Easter. We're going to do it again this year. Here's why. It worked. There are people getting baptized 
this Easter that were someone's one last Easter. How cool is that? That's an amazing thing. It's all about Jesus. And so what we're going to ask you to do is to identify someone who needs to know Christ, someone who is unchurched or unsaved or, or churched in a way that's not teaching the gospel at a church that's not teaching the gospel. And I want you to invite them this Easter. Um, in the back we have, and you saw it on the thing, it's also on a slide here. Um, we have these places where you can go and get an invitation. They're perforated. So when you get one, it literally has uh, two parts to it. I've already pulled mine off. It has two parts to it. One is it's per, it's this new technology called perforation. It's pretty cool. On the back, you can write down someone that you are going to identify as the person that you're going to invite, that you're going to pray for and invite. And then you put your Sunday school class down so we can have a group of people praying for that person. Okay. But um, I want to compel you this time of year, people who are religious who may not be saved and may be willing to come to church, people who are not religious but are hurting or in crisis, they may, who believes God's working on people right now? People that you know. And salvation is necessary. They must be born again. And it's only in Jesus. So we can partner together. We can all pray together for people that we all know to come to church and on that Sunday hear the gospel. That may end up giving you opportunities to have conversations outside of this as sent people to give them the gospel and call them to repentance. We're trying to equip you to do that. But this is one way that everybody can do it. When you rip off that perforation, you can uh, turn that into a black box um, in the back, turn it into offering time. You bring it to me. We'll get their name on a list and begin to pray for them. Then you have an invitation left over where you can invite someone to come to a, a service where they're going to hear the gospel clearly. There is no name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And Jesus is alive. We don't serve a, de serve a dead Savior. We serve a risen Savior. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me?